electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Like Scott said, the Nasdaq is trying to stitch together a rebound after its 5% plunge yesterday, but it's only up 22 points right now. The Dow's negative again, and the S&P is back in negative territory. Yields are sliding as well on continued growth concerns. We'll speak with one five-star fund manager who has five picks to weather these macro crosswinds. And retailers with pricing power are outperforming, but nobody seems to care. One analyst cutting estimates across the board except for two names. We have them, and they may surprise you. Plus, a commodities play, a streetwear name, and a chip giant with big exposure to China. That's all ahead in today's earnings exchange. But first, let's begin with these markets. And unfortunately, after yesterday's steep declines, we are not seeing much of a rally as the trading session carries on today. The Dow down two. 66. We were down 473 at the lows. The S&P down 17 points. It was down 1.2% at the lows. The S&P just back over 3,900 at the moment. Uh, and the NASDAQ up about 20 points earlier. It was down 1%. Watching this trading action very closely over the next couple of hours. Consumer discretionary is leading the bounce back if it's a bounce back. Expedia, Caesars, Booking, reopening names. Those at least are showing some positives today. Staples, the worst performer again. Clorox, Philip Morris, Molson Coors, the biggest decliners there. We're talking about declines in Clorox's case of almost 5%. Speaking of decliners, Cisco down sharply as well, down 14%, in fact, making it the worst stock in the S&P, the Dow, and the NASDAQ 100. That's after cutting its forecast in its earnings last night. And finally, take a look at some of the other cloud and enterprise names, Datadog, Okta, Atlassian, Zscaler. These have had a really difficult month. They're all down 18% or more this month. Putting together a rebound today, at least Datadog is up 12%. There is the monthly performance. You can see what a tough slog it truly has been. Now, the yield on the 10-year is much lower again today. Yesterday morning, it was over 3%. We are at 283 right now as investors watch the Fed for any clues as to how they'll combat inflation. Kansas City Fed President Esther George striking a forceful tone. I think we will succeed in bringing down inflation because we have the tools to do uh, the heavy lifting on that as it relates to demand. And we do see uh, financial conditions beginning to tighten. So I think that's something we'll have to watch carefully. It's hard to know how much will be needed to make that happen, given all the moving parts that we see today in the economy. On that note, let's bring in our own Steve Leisman. Steve, so much to unpack there in what she said. The market is wondering if the Fed's going to back off, frankly, given the tightening we've seen in financial conditions and worries about the economy. That was not the impression that I got from Esther George. That is certainly not her opinion. The, the Fed has a job to do. Esther George seems, and the rest of the Fed, I think, are, are squarely focused on that job, which is bringing down inflation. They're aware of what's happening in equity markets. They're watching it. Uh, there's always some measure of concern. But right now, they still see the equity markets as a conduit to transmit 
monetary policy, which is through tighter financial conditions and eventually uh, as well some impact from the wealth effect, Kelly. So, uh, yes, they're aware of what's going on. I think uh, Esther George feels the pain of those in the market, but not at this point want to do anything about it because of the imperative of dealing with inflation. But is in what she was talking about there, is she trying to signal some flexibility if it looks like we're going into recession? Because the unspoken thing about this whole recession question, Steve, is whether that itself would actually cure inflation. I mean, we could go into a recession that that barely budges the CPI. I, I think that's a great point, and I think the, the, the Fed is, is ultimately flexible in all of those regards, uh, except for, I think, the one issue, which is that they need to bring inflation down. They feel like that's their absolute uh, goal they have to accomplish. Um, and I think there's some expectation, not expectation, but some willingness to accept the idea of a recession, uh, either as a result of that or in, 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 in pursuit of the goal. So um, uh, we're just seeing uh, uh, Kelly, J.P. Morgan bring down its forecast for this year and next year. Uh, we're seeing others do as well. So we're going to be running very close to a, a zero rate, I think, in some quarters coming up is the, are, are the forecasts that I'm seeing. Um, and I think the Fed is willing to accept that in pursuit of its goal. I think it feels like there's a lot of froth in the economy that can come out before people feel real pain, either through the job market or through a loss of income. Uh, and, and they're willing to, to make that bet that the imperative of bringing down inflation uh, requires it. What, Steve, what does the Fed define success as here? What would Powell say is his goal right now? It's a really great question. I think it's, 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 I mean, obviously a soft landing in that they bring inflation down without causing the economy to go into recession would be the first goal, I think, um, without causing massive losses. I don't think the Fed wants there to be massive losses in the stock market. I think that would be a huge success for them. But I do think in the spectrum of possible outcomes, I think a mild recession, uh, if, if it ends up bringing inflation out of the system and allowing the Fed to operate at a lower funds rate, allowing the economy to operate at a low interest rate, I think a mild recession, the Fed would also chalk up as a potential success there. Very interesting. Steve, it looks lovely where you are. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. We appreciate it. Yeah, great place, Kansas City. Thanks, Kelly. Our Steve Leisman today. All right, my next guest says, enough of the gloom and doom. You can ride out this market by holding stocks that have long-term value. Joining me is Matthew McLennan, portfolio manager of First Eagle Investments with more than $100 billion in assets under management, and he manages the Morningstar five-star rated First Eagle Global Fund. Matthew, it's good to have you. Let's cut right to it. Well, I guess before I ask you specifics, what's your base case for what happens with the economy right now? Well, I, I would just preface my comments by saying the crystal ball is cloudy at best. I think it's it's very difficult to um, to call um, the economy, and I think we just have to remember back to the time of COVID, um, how few uh, economic forecasters predicted that. But I think it's fair to say that um, quite a deceleration is baked into the cards. If we look at some of the leading indicators, credit spreads, market breadth, um, the forward yield curve, for example, or the ISM New Orders Index, uh, let alone some of the inventory data that we're seeing out of the big retailers and the fiscal contraction that we've got, um, you know, it, it seems that we're set for quite a meaningful deceleration in economic growth in the U.S., and we're seeing those trends elsewhere around the world, in China, Europe, and the like. So you acknowledge it's going to be tough sledding. Against that backdrop, give me the five stocks. I'm sure there are more than that, but at least five that you think our audience could bank on right now? I think it's the time for realism. Uh, last year, we probably saw the lowest cost of capital in a generation, and, and markets cleared at levels that they probably couldn't sustain. So I think this correction has been healthy. And 
Um, our response to uh, this kind of environment is to think like business owners. We're not trying to predict where the market bottom is going to be. So we're trying to put together a thoughtful uh, barbell of businesses that offer basic essentials uh, in different industry groups. And so you might have uh, defensive uh, cash flow generative businesses like Comcast, you know, for your Wi-Fi, uh, or a, a corporate stable like Oracle in relational databases. These are cash flow uh, machines with mid-single-digit free cash flow yields and mid-single-digit growth. In the consumer space, uh, some of the names in Europe are quite attractive. We, you know, we see names like Danone with close to a 6% free cash flow yield in some basic products like infant nutrition and bottled water um, and dairy yogurt. Uh, and so these kinds of businesses, I think, can form the basis of a, a barbell approach uh, to investment allocation where you're not trying to pick the bottom of the market because it could be a lot lower if we get a recession or if we get a monetary crisis, but where you're trying to position yourself as a business owner for the next decade where the arithmetic makes sense. You know, Peter Bookvar yesterday also mentioned that he thinks European stocks have, in some cases, more attractive valuations here for investors who are, are sort of picking through the rubble. But I've also heard that Europe's recession could be deeper and worse than what we're facing because of their exposures to Russia and energy and some other issues. So Europe does face um, the problem of higher natural gas prices, whereas the U.S. is more uh, integrated in terms of its energy production. And so it's somewhat shielded from that. But let's not lose sight of the fact that um, the United States economy was the beneficiary of much more stimulus, greater supply, money supply growth, uh, lower real interest rates, uh, greater fiscal deficits. All of that is unwinding. We've had a fundamental regime shift here uh, where money supply could contract, uh, where it's not just interest rates that are going up, but we're seeing a, um, a, a very substantial fiscal contraction. And so the U.S. benefited from uh, very easy policy conditions that are now normalizing. And so things could get um, equally challenging in the United States. So even on the stock picking front, oh, I'm sorry. No, I, I take your point. So we, you, Oracle's one of your stocks that you like. How do you respond, for instance, to Cisco's decline last night? I mean, does that tell us that even relatively stayed parts of this, you know, the economy can be vulnerable to the period that we're going through? Or does it highlight to you the difference in picking the right stocks, uh, maybe you would take an Oracle over a Cisco, for example. Look, look, I think if we if we end up in uh, recessionary territory, I think most businesses are going to suffer in one form or, or another. Uh, and we've seen that even across the retail complex where uh, the sort of staples retailers are doing uh, pretty poorly as well as some of the discretionary retailers. And so uh, I think it's impossible to, to totally escape a tide going out. But what I will say in the case of Oracle is that the majority of their operating profits come from recurring maintenance fees uh, on, the, on the databases and the enterprise application software that they've installed. And so that's a more stable cash flow stream um, than having to sell uh, new products uh, hmm. to customers. And I should mention a couple of other names uh, among your top holdings, Meta or Facebook, C.H. Robinson, Philip Morris, Anthem. So a diversified basket there. Matthew, thanks for a uh, I would say sort of talking us off the ledge or talking us through <laughs> for your ideas uh, in a very difficult environment. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Kelly. And, and, you know, it's comforting to see folks like Warren Buffett committing some capital here. But I think that they're not committing their last dollar. They're, they're prudently doing it in a measured way. All right. Well said. Matthew McLennan of First Eagle joining me today. Coming up, Target in the red again after posting its worst day in 35 years. If they don't have pricing power, who does? We've actually got some names. Plus, Wells Fargo is forecasting a recession at the end of this year. What's driving the call and would it even be enough to bring inflation down? And as we head to break, here's a check on markets as the Nasdaq has slipped back into the red. We're off session lows, but all three major averages 
are declining after yesterday's huge falls. The Russell 2000 small caps clinging on to a three-tenths of 1% gain. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The worst S&P sectors so far this week are the consumer-facing ones, both discretionary and staples, as you can see there. The retail sector in particular been taking it on the chin this year, down more than 30 percent from its highs, with the two biggies, Walmart and Target, down about 26 and 43 percent, respectively. Even stalwart Costco, which reports next week, down about 31 percent from its highs. And my next guest says the market doesn't seem to care about who has pricing power and who doesn't. Let's bring in Scott Ciccarelli. He's a retail analyst at truest it's great to have you scott and first of all who who does still have pricing power well i think anytime you have or selling a product that doesn't have a lot of substitutability you have pricing power people don't necessarily buy certain things you know every couple uh you know uh, very often and so when you can walk in and you don't really know what the price is supposed to be and there aren't a lot of alternatives think about it as auto parts for example you know somebody needs a starter for a 2005 ford f-150 you kind of need a starter for a Ford F-150. You don't have a lot of uh, choices in the matter. So some specific companies uh, that you think are emblematic of that, Home Depot, Lowe's, you think they should be holding up relatively better? I, I do. And in fact, you know, the, what we've heard from them this week is, you know, business is still holding up pretty well for those guys. So I, I think one of the things that we heard from Target and Walmart specifically is, you know what, they're getting squeezed on, on costs. Um, but they don't have as much ability, I think, to pass on price outside of food, where we are seeing sizable food inflation, um, because there's a lot of competition. But when you need a particular home improvement product, whatever that may happen to be, a a drill, a saw, whatever, you kind of go to who has it. And that's going to be Home Depot and Lowe's. Home Depot and Lowe's today are in the green, while Target's down another 6% after yesterday's declines, which is just astonishing. And you say you've been cutting estimates pretty much across the board? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, it was belated. But yes, uh, you know, yesterday, Target and, you know, the day before that, Walmart told us some pretty nasty things happening in retail. I think supply chains are becoming even more problematic as opposed to healing the way a lot of people anticipated. Costs are running well above, you know, what, what a lot of people had anticipated, a lot of management teams had anticipated. We're starting to see some incremental pressure on lower income consumers. You know, when Walmart tells you that, uh, you know, people are buying more half gallons of milk instead of full gallons of milk, you know there's some uh, consumer pressure there. 
And we're not necessarily seeing that in the, the home improvement sector where we've had pretty good earnings reports from both Lowe's and Home Depot. So where does that leave you? For example, there's the auto parts companies out there. We saw Dollar General taking a hit yesterday. You might think that would hold up better. But again, they could lose the discretionary help right now. What about the rest of the spectrum as we watch uh, for potentially this low income headwind to continue to play out? Well, look, I, I think at the end of the day, if you are a retailer and you're uh, heavily focused or levered to that low-income consumer, it's going to be tough sledding for a while. Now, what we saw happen in kind of the, the Great Recession timeframe, you know, dollar store sales, for example, were actually decelerating to the point where they ne went negative at the end of 2007. Then once we wound up getting into the, the great financial crisis portion of that recession and uh, the uh, employment cycle basically unraveled, then all of a sudden you had a lot of trade down, uh, trade in customers or trade down customers where people were leaving other places so that they could shop at the dollar stores and help extend their their wallet. Right. And so, again, that leaves you with Home Depot and Lowe's, hopefully uh, relative bright spots in what's an increasingly difficult environment. Scott, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Kelly. Scott Ciccarelli with Truist. We've got a news alert on Elon Musk's bid for Twitter. Julia Borston with the story. Julia, what's the latest? Kelly, more headlines out today um, about Twitter executives telling employees that the deal is proceeding as expected. Bloomberg reporting that executives telling Twitter staff that the deal is proceeding as expected and there's no such thing as a deal being on hold. Of course, they're responding to um, Musk tweeting that earlier this week. Now, Twitter shares are up 0.7% today. They did spike on this news, but it is worth pointing out, Kelly, that shares are still way below that price that Elon Musk is paying for the company. They're 37 dollars right now and Musk um, offered $54.20 for the company. I also just want to point out that there are more reports of executives leaving the company. You know, we yesterday, CNBC.com had a great article about more senior executives leading the company. And certainly it seems like the management of Twitter is trying to reassure employees that things are moving forward. When, Kelly, back over to you. And when they say that, I mean, can they force him to consummate the deal? I, I guess it's already consummated. I don't know. It's murky. Uh, it, it's murky. Obviously, he, he is, certainly seems to be looking to try to get a lower price for the deal. If you look at the differential between where Twitter is uh, trading now and what he offered to pay for it. But there are various complicating legal factors that are tying him into the deal right now, including that $1 billion breakup fee, as, as well as some other things. All right, Julia, thank you. Uh, the latest chapter in the saga, Twitter shares spiking into positive territory, still up about one and a half percent, our Julia Borston. Still ahead, three key names on deck with earnings. Amat, Applied Materials, VF Corp, and Deer. They are all set to report tonight. They're all trading in the red today. We've got some numbers and narratives to know next. Plus, we'll head down to the NASDAQ to look at the damage as the index tracks for its seventh straight week of declines, its longest losing streak in over two decades. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map. Only four names are in the green right now, as the Dow itself is on pace for its eighth straight weekly decline. Cisco, Travelers, and Walmart, those are your biggest decliners today. Home Depot, one of the biggest gainers. We're back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We're still about 200 points off the Dow session low, but all three major averages are in the red again today after yesterday's big declines. Consumer discretionary is leading, relatively speaking. Uh, take a look at the action behind me here with a three-tenths of 1% gain. Actually, materials now up half a percent. Consumer staples are the worst again. They're down 2%. Transports are also amongst the biggest laggards today. Avis Budget Group, Union Pacific, CSX, Norfolk Southern, Ryder, they're all lower. The transport ETF, the IYT, is on pace for its fifth straight losing week for the longest stretch since 2013. Harley-Davidson shares are also plunging after the company is suspending most assembly and deliveries for two weeks due to a parts issue at a supplier. The issue does not impact its electric unit, uh, but the shares are still down almost 10% today and on pace for their worst week since February of last year. Let's head down to Christina Parts and Evelis now. She's at the NASDAQ for a bigger look at the moves in tech. Christina. Oh, thank you, Kelly. And unfortunately, I'm just going to let our team know I don't see anything in the prompter. But we are going to keep moving with what the NASDAQ is doing, staging somewhat of a comeback now in the green. There are so many analyst notes out there, Kelly, and commentators that are saying uh, this is like the tech bubble. But if we look at the tech bubble at the peak, at the, its height at early uh, March 2000, all the way to its low in October 2002, it actually fell 78%. So we still have ways to go if we're going to make that comparison. And yes, there's been a deep cut, no doubt. Kelly, you pointed out the longest losing streak in two decades for the NASDAQ. But the NASDAQ is giving up a lot of its more recent upside just in the past year. It's still higher if we look at it on a five-year basis. And today's weakest sectors, utilities are in the mix, transportation, consumer non-durables, consumer services and, and durables are actually leading the charge. Many cloud names specifically are reversing course to the upside, like Datadog surging over 10%. This is a reversal, though, just over the past few days. Cloud getting hit really hard. Data on the month, though, still in the negative, uh, down double digits. Cisco today, the biggest lagger of the bunch. It would have been a solid quarter, but its reliance on supplies from China just crushed it. So that's why the stock is plunging over 14%. Other weaker names on the Nasdaq. You've got Chipmaker, Broadcom, rail transportation firm, CSX, and Kraft. Kelly? She didn't Back miss a beat. <laughs> Christina, thank you very much. <laughs> Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? And to think she did that without a prompter. <laughs> that's, that's just amazing. All right, folks, President Biden is in the air right now on his first official trip to Asia. Tomorrow, he will meet with South Korea's newly elected president. He will then go to Japan for a summit with the leaders of Japan, India, and Australia. That should be very interesting. Before he left from Joint Base Andrews, Biden endorsed NATO membership for Sweden and Finland. They meet every NATO requirement, and then some. And having two new NATO members in the high north will enhance the security of our alliance and deepen our security cooperation across the board. 
Minutes ago, the Senate voted 86 to 11 to pass a $40 billion aid bill for Ukraine. It now goes to President Biden for his expected signature. And Reuters reports Biden is prepared to sign off on another $100 million in military help for Ukraine as soon as today. And at their meeting in Germany, the G7 finance ministers say in a draft communique they will continue to support Ukraine throughout the war and are prepared to do more as needed. Tonight on the news with Chef Smith, a major military morale problem. Why desertions from the U.S. Navy have doubled in the past few years. That's an interesting one. Kelly, back to you. All right, Tyler, thank you very much, and we'll see you very soon. Still ahead, my next guest sees a recession at the end of this year. We'll look at the potential fallout for markets and how he's shifting his investment strategy because of it. Dow's down 234. We're back after this. Welcome back, everybody. Time for earnings exchange with stocks trying to recover from yesterday's sell-off as those disappointing retail earnings sparked concerns, and they're not over yet. Let's get to the action, the story, and the trade on three names that are now set to report on deck today. Deer, Applied Materials, and VF Corp. And we'll start with Deer. The shares are outpacing the averages by far. They're up 6% this year. That's hard to even find. Now, they have fallen on two of the last four earnings reports. Seema Modi is here with the story on Deer, and Quint Tatro has our trades today. He is founder and president of Jewel Financial. Welcome to you both. Seema, Deer, what are we watching? Well, Kelly, as you know, the minute wheat and corn prices started to skyrocket, shares of deer outperformed on this notion that there would be higher demand for agriculture equipment, devices like tractors and combines. So did that thesis play out? Deer's order numbers, order book will provide that answer, how large its backlog is. And also regarding freight and raw material costs like Target, is it seeing a larger than expected uh, pull there? It did reference $2 billion in freight in raw material costs for this year. So given the macro challenges, is that number changing? Now, Kelly, this is one of those rare companies that it's sort of a mix of agriculture, but also technology. It's one of those rare companies that invests a lot in tech from AI to robotics to help farmers you really uh, embrace precision farming. That's one of the reasons Kathy Wood has this stock in her uh, robotics ETF. But given the slowing economy, does that change the way it's allocating capital? Just two days ago, Caterpillar unveiling a $15 billion stock buyback program. So how it's using its capital will be key as well. Great point. And Quint, I'm surprised you're not really a buyer here, are you? Yeah, I'm going to fade most of the things that we talk about today just because I think that we're in this uh, potentially in this in this environment where, uh, believe it or not, what I think has worked over the last several months, I think is going to stop working. So we're sort of starting we're in the peak inflation camp right now. And I think deer personally is priced to, f- to perfection. Uh, traders have definitely priced these um, inflationary pressures in from soft to hard commodities across the board. The stock's trading 14 times forward earnings. Now, it is 20 percent off highs, but as you mentioned, significantly outpacing the averages and really has been a hiding spot for money this year, still 200% off of COVID lows. So again, this is a valuation call. There's obviously a lot of debt, which is normal for a company like this. I suspect the company probably blows numbers away. And I would use the strength if you're in this name and have, have absolutely killed it this year to basically lighten up because I wouldn't at all be surprised to see us sell the news. And if we're right and we start to see inflationary pressures abate at all, this stock's going to get hit. Who do you think is going to do well, Quinn? Because at least you're you're sounding more constructive and not saying that everything's going to stop working. 
Yeah, Kelly, I mean, here's a deal. We we like to to look at things that are out of favor and that's very hard to do. Timing is well, near impossible at times, but you know, we're going to talk about applied materials and applied materials in the tech space is a name that I think is cheap. Everybody wanted semis, you know, a year ago, they couldn't get enough of them. Now the stock with a pristine balance sheet, they have no debt at all. They're trading forward times earnings at 12. They're growing those earnings at 15% in an environment, again, where we're starting to see chips come uh, online. The stock is down 33%. So I think that with this report, if there's any weakness at all in this report, we don't yet own it. We're looking for a place to buy. I'm not going to buy ahead of the report, but any weakness off this report on applied materials, we're a buyer. All right. Well, you jumped ahead of us here. So let's. Uh, that's the trade. Uh, let's get the story. <laughs> Christina Partsenevelis is back with us. Um, the, the shares, Christina, have been down 28% this year into these earnings. Yeah, so bear market territory for this particular company. But if we talk about the chip sector as a whole, there's going to be uh, any weakness, it's going to come from supply, not demand. Uh, for applied materials in particular, they have a great balance. They are uh, almost 50% foundry business. So this is where you make chips that other companies design. And then you also have the memory chip business. And a lot of that is going to be driven by the Internet of Things, everything being connected, power centers. Uh, and so this is a lot of strength. Two concerns, though, two concerns for this latest quarter quarter are in terms of cost pressures coming from freight and logistics, which we know we just can't get around that. And then the second point, too, is labor costs. This company has been growing. Uh, revenue stream has been quite strong. And so they've been hiring a lot of staff members. We know uh, wages have climbed. So there's going to be two headwinds going forward. But nonetheless, applied materials uh, is one of the, I guess, uh, there are a lot of bullish calls on Wall Street based off of what I've been reading, uh, despite the sell-off, which we've seen for the entire sector just this year alone. Yeah, and Quint, obviously, one of those, uh, as you were just explaining, Quint, this is a name you would be more constructive on here. What about concerns that the inventory more uh, inventory cycle more broadly in the semiconductor space, where we've seen a massive re-rating of these stocks, and much like the inventory issue that we're now seeing in retail goods, should we expect a rebound, or do we have to kind of, you know, clean out here and reset at a lower plateau post-pandemic? I think a little bit of both. I think what's happening is investors across the board now with retail as the latest victim are realizing that this isn't just segmented to chips, right? Chips were the, the first one in, in a long line of dominoes to fall regarding uh, the supply chain issue, getting getting product, getting product to people, all the while managing cost and, and inflationary pressures, not just on product you don't have, but on labor costs, et cetera. So yeah, the, the, the reality is, is that that story can ring true, but I don't think that's a surprise. I, I don't think that if, unless there's this newfound, oh my goodness, we, we're now out to 2025 to get supplies. I just don't see that. I'm not hearing that. So I think that that is baked into a 33% drop in a stock that is, again, trading, in our opinion, below fair value and with a pristine balance sheet. So that's all we can hope to do is, is buy quality companies at reasonable prices uh, and hold them for a long time. That's, that's our objective. All right. Well, there was the SMH ETF as well, down significantly, but as you say, an opportunity, you think, for Amet. Uh, Christina, thanks. And we'll turn now to uh, VF Corp, which is, you know, got under pressure with uh, everything we've heard from the retailers this week. They make, you know, North Face and Timberland. They're the parent company. They've been falling 3% today and about 40% this year. Courtney Reagan here, Court, with what investors will be watching for. 
Yeah, Kelly, obviously retail's really been in focus this week. We're all wondering what it means for the state of the consumer. And in some cases, we're getting a read through on that. And then others, frankly, they're just kind of messy businesses right now because of the way that businesses have to be run and all the things that have to be maneuvered around. So going into this print for VF Corp, many analysts have taken down their estimates in part from what we've heard from other retailers when it pertains to what's going on to running the business. Costs are just so much higher than many of these companies anticipated, whether that's transportation costs for the goods themselves, whether that's the fuel, raw materials costs, uh, foreign exchange rates, you name it, all pressures on profitability. So estimates have come down sharply for VF Corp. And really, there's a lot of concern about the business in China. BTIG estimates that VF Corp's business in China is about 11% of total revenue. They report out the APAC region, and China is the vast majority of that. It's very important for Vans. And Vans as a brand is very important in general for the growth of VF Corp. And China is a very important region. And so those are two big uncertainty points and worries going into this quarter. Now, what could be working better is the workwear that's led by the Dickies brand. However, that is a much smaller segment by revenue. North Face and Timberland are expected to do a little bit better and actually could have been beneficiaries from some of this colder spring weather that we've had, but likely not enough to offset the pressure coming from China. Oh, great point. All right. So, Quint, here's the thing. I know you're a little bearish on VF Corp, but what about the goose this morning? Canada Goose came out with a kind of a nice surprise, the stock doing well, the high-end consumers holding up, but maybe that's a different segment than VF Corp. Not necessarily. I mean, North Face, Timberland, those are brands I would I would kind of skew maybe towards the not ultra higher end, but decent. Here's my problem with this company. I like a lot of these brands. I like this company. My problem with this company is balance sheet. I mean, debt to equity 1.4. Uh, and if they continue to go through a cash crunch and, and issues that that's just going to mount. So they're going to be financing their operations in a rising rate environment. So my concern is more of a balance sheet uh, issue. Normally, when I look at a company that's 50% off recent highs, trading at a decent valuation, you know, not great, they just have to sniff out any sort of change whatsoever. And I would anticipate a pop in this stock. The, the challenge, again, as an investor, I can't necessarily invest in a company that has a struggling balance sheet with no really turnaround yet in sight. So I'd rather be late on this one. If you're stuck in this name and you've written it down and you get a pop after this earnings uh, report, I don't necessarily think, you know, it's a it's a dramatic turnaround. I think it's a probably a gift to lighten up and then reevaluate another time in the future. All right. We've got a quick, Courtney, just quickly on the goose. What, how did China do for them? Because that was also a big concern for them as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was. And obviously, um, the luxury consumer around the world, Kelly, is really, really strong. China, of course, is a very important region for Canada Goose. And they were able to really sort of just meter things out a little bit better. Of course, they're going to be a smaller company by revenue than a VF Corp. So it is a little bit uh, relative when you're looking at it in those terms. But Luxury across the board is, is doing very well. We, of course, understand that that customer is a little less sensitive to inflation. However, yeah. more sensitive to volatility in the market. True. Uh, so that's always kind of tough to figure out when you're looking at those two things together. And even with today's 10% pop, I should mention, Canada Goose is still down 43% this year. Courtney and Quint, thank you both very much. Courtney Reagan, Quint Tatro with our trades today. Still ahead as companies report disappointing results and stocks sell off. That recession conversation is evolving from harder landing to when will it start? Wells Fargo's answer is sooner than you might think. They join us next.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Wells Fargo Investment Institute making a new call that inflation and an economic slowdown will be a recession as early as this year. And that will send the unemployment rate higher. Joining me now, one of the authors behind the report, Paul Christopher. He's head of global market strategy. Paul, it's good to have you again. Welcome. And I should note you made this call before yesterday's big sell-off. So, you, know, <laughs> uh, you guys, what is it in the data that tells you uh, a recession in Q4? You know, we've been watching the data slow all year. And what, what really triggered the call was that we're, we're picking up an acceleration since March and particularly since mid-April. If you think about uh, wage growth is slowing, you even are starting to see unemployment claims pick up highest level since February. Demand is starting to slow services are not having the strong spring that we thought they would, and they're not at all as strong as they were in spring of 21 when COVID was still a concern. So we think the economy is slowing under these double blows of inflation and rate hikes that are here and coming. So, you know, if we look at the, for instance, three-month 10-year yield curve, that's still at historically steep levels, about 1.7 points. Um, Even just the level of the 10-year yield, if you want to take that, is not necessarily telling you that recession is around the corner. And I wonder if this is just going to be one of those weird environments where, you know, nominal growth is so strong that, you know, we don't have a lot of real purchasing power growth, but we also don't have the conditions that technically qualify as a recession. I mean, if look, if you look at the uh, if you look at the impact that that slowing growth and that slowing spending is having on margins, you've got inflation that still keeps uh, cost pressures high for firms. And at the same time, you're not having the sort of demand growth that we saw last year that rescued profit margins. We think going forward, that's going to continue to squeeze. So, you know, if we think about an indicator like the yield curve, you have to ask then, well, what what's the yield curve not seeing or seeing differently? And we think the answer there is probably still inflation, inflation expectations, maybe not quite settled yet once they do. And once the, the dawning of the slowdown in the economy uh, come to get the, to the bond market, we think you will start to see that curve flatten and we will be looking for opportunities in long-term fixed income. Yeah, oh, interesting. So that actually makes you maybe a little bit more bullish on bonds of all things. Tell us what else are the investment Not implications. Not quite yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not bullish on bonds yet. Yeah. What about for stocks? For stocks, look, this is an opportunity for investors to be patient. Whether you're a long-term investor, and we have a lot of those, or a short-term investor, patience is going to be the key here. And we've been moving progressively, incrementally away from cyclicals, away from sectors and markets that are tied closely to strong economic growth. And we think that there will be opportunities to do more of that in the weeks and months ahead. So for right now, investors probably need to be pretty well barbelled or balanced between, uh, let's say, a full market weight in defensives on the one hand, like staples and utilities. And on the other hand, looking at things like energy that would benefit from the supply shortages, uh, as well as healthcare and information technology that we think still have good cash flow uh, and they have good business prospects, good revenue prospects for the future, but really pretty attractive looking valuations right now. And when would you be a buyer of bonds? Well, we're waiting for the we're waiting for inflation expectations sort of to settle a little bit more and for the the reality of the slowdown to the and, the, and its trend towards you know that tipping point into recession. We're waiting for that to dawn on the bond market. It could be weeks. It could be days. Uh, not not quite sure. But we don't think it's quite time to buy a duration net or long-term bonds. All right. Paul Christopher, thanks for joining us today.
Thank you. With Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Coming up, China is firmly back on the road to reopening with the subways in Shanghai running again and the city's port resuming operations. Will their return to normal be enough to right the supply chain and alleviate inflation fears? We have that and the names that could benefit next. Welcome back to The Exchange. A bright spot in the market over the past week has actually been the KWeb China Internet ETF, up about 10 percent as some of its biggest holdings like Alibaba, JD.com and Pinduoduo climb. That's coming as the port of Shanghai reportedly is back at 90 percent cargo capacity. But we've seen recent earnings showing supply chain snarls and ha- uh, havoc re- for U.S. retailers while others are dealing with overstock issues. So what does China portend for the U.S.? Joining me now is Michael Yoshikami, the Destination Wealth Management founder and CEO. Michael, what's your best advice to investors about exposure to China specifically or Chinese supply chain more narrowly in the case of uh, U.S. companies? Well, first of all, I think it's very, very important to recognize that U.S. multinationals are going to be affected by what's happening in China. It doesn't get a lot of press. Uh, You hear about Shanghai maybe coming out of the downturn in terms of the lockdown, uh, but the rest of China is locked down. All across China, you have neighborhoods locked down, cities locked down, and that's going to affect earnings for U.S. multinationals. That's the first thing, Kelly. The second thing is in terms of uh, some of these stocks that you're referencing, uh, Alibaba at at 87, I think, is on your screen right now. Um, Just ask yourself where that stock was a year and a half ago. So um, while we have bounces on the short term, I'm still very, very cautious on China. I still think they're not out of the woods yet. And it's a, a weird thing where, you know, to the extent China comes back online, it's great for global growth. You know, it's reassuring for the supply chain and it's a real problem right. for a potential energy crisis. Uh, it, it, is a, it is a problem, exactly, because if China does go back online, I think the point you're making is there's going to be more energy consumption. Uh, and it's going to be at higher prices, and that's going to possibly drive energy prices higher, which could p- potentially cause inflation. But um, I think I think supply chain is starting to loosen up a little. But as you saw from the earnings reports yesterday uh, or, or this week from uh, Walmart and Target, they're still suffering with the problems related to supply chain issues in terms of just getting the system. Uh, you know, it's like a siphon, right? It just takes a while to get into the system. And even though shipping is up 90%, back to 90%, as you mentioned, um, it's just going to take time, and I think it's not going to be resolved until early next year. What are your best investment ideas right now, then, for you know, as we navigate the uncertainty that's still emanating from China? Yeah, well, if you ask me for my best investment ideas on an international basis, I'd be very, very cautious on emerging markets right now. I know there's lots of headlines talking about how they're historically cheap valuations, and they've been historically cheap valuations for years. Right. Um, so I think I still think companies that have good earnings streams, dividends. Uh, yes, multinationals, if you want to dip into companies that um, do have exposure to emerging markets. But I'd be cautious on China. I'd be more U.S., mid to large cap, dividend focused, large cash flow, buy some of the names in tech that have been uh, beaten down significantly and be um, lower duration on fixed income. Do you think we're going into recession? And how do you balance that concern against inflation? You know, I, I don't think it's quite as much of a certainty as um, was just suggested by an earlier guest. I think there's a sort of a coin toss right now, a 50-50 um, toss. It really depends on how fast the Fed raises rates. I, I, I just don't see right now the obvious warning signs we're going to go into, as you reference, a classic, classically defined recession. We could have a significant slowdown and in higher inflation, not stagflation, but slow growth inflation. 
Recession, I just don't see right now, but we're still looking at the tea leaves. But at this point, I, I don't think that's likely. I think it's a coin toss. Do investors need to stay out of stocks, given the headwinds? Uh, well, if you're in stocks now, it's too late to get out of stocks. If you're not in stocks now, I think it's time to really start. Uh, I don't know. I, would, I won't use the word bottom fishing, but value fishing, because I do think that the market with the S&P approaching a 20 percent down bear market uh, and the Nasdaq already well in that um, range. I think there's opportunities to start dripping in, but I would not get too excited and start calling a market bottom. I'd be dripping over time, kind of a reverse or kind of a DCA sort of strategy. Start buying some names you want in your portfolio long term that maybe you're trading 30, 40 percent down from their highs. All right. Dollar cost averaging. 401ks. Sounding good. All right. Michael Yoshikami, good to check in with you. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it today. Coming up, President Biden could meet with the Saudi crown prince as early as next month, according to reports. We'll look at what it could mean for crude as oil continues to rally back above $111 a barrel. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. Before we go, one more thing that should definitely be on your radar. President Biden is reportedly going to meet with the Saudi crown prince as early as next month. Brian Sullivan is here with the significance of that for oil production, Brian, and gas prices. Yeah, if this occurs, Kelly, thank you very much. All right, there have been some reports coming out really in the last couple of hours or so. President Biden may be meeting with Saudi crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, better known, of course, as MBS, CNN reporting that a meeting, if it happens, would come maybe at the June meeting of the Gulf Cooperation Council, which Saudi Arabia chairs. However, I'm not going to throw entirely a bucket of water on it, but I will say this. A well-placed source in D.C. saying that it would be hard to see President Biden landing in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. But with oil prices where they are, Kelly, the president may be looking for any thaw in that relationship. But Remember, it's a testy relationship. Biden, as a candidate in 2019, called Saudi Arabia a, quote, pariah state with no social value. And last year ended support for the Saudis over their fight with rebels in Yemen. Now, this is not the first leak about a possible meeting between the Saudis and President Biden. Back in March, Axios had a story on it. And of course, that meeting never materialized. Still, there may be a thaw here. Saudi Deputy Defense Minister Khalid bin Salman, one of the brothers, Crown Prince brother, has been in D.C. this week meeting with U.S. Defense Department officials. He is the highest ranking member of the royal family to visit D.C. in Biden's term. President Biden, Kelly, obviously would need the Saudis to help push OPEC to try to increase oil output to bring down gasoline prices. Right. Because inflation is a major issue. Whether this meeting happens, we'll see. And it is noteworthy, Brian, that the Saudis are pumping more than 12 million barrels a day at the lows in March 2020. Way They were in that price war with the Russians. Now there are millions of barrels a day below that level. Yeah, and would any kind of a thawing of the relationship, would a meeting help with that? I mean, there's not a lot of spare capacity out there, but certainly I think it couldn't hurt if there was some dialogue between the two. Although, listen, politically... It's a risky move for President Biden. You know that better than I do. So we'll see if it happens. If it does, will it help? We don't know. A lot of questions. There's your headline. Good luck. Yeah, and they're a big supplier. We can only hope uh, that maybe they will be able to bring more yeah. online. Brian, thank you very much, Brian Sullivan. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 